You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No this episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Guarding the Emperor was not for the faint of heart. It's a dangerous game, sharing your palace with a beast. You don't have a choice. The beast is older than your kingship. It is older than the empire itself. It was here in this palace when you ascended the throne, and it will be here when you leave. The beast is your power. It has long, sharp claws and bloody fangs. With these, it subdues your enemies. They bow down, swearing their fealty to you and your beast. You rule together. You are kings and emperors. When the screams of the slaves come through the walls, when the blood runs red beneath your door and you can't sleep, you remind yourself that you are the emperor. You keep the beast fed and sheltered. You give it purpose. It might rend your enemies limb from limb and devour the occasional subject, but the beast would never turn on you. Would it? I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. During our last episode on Child Emperors, there was a common thread to all of these stories. An elephant in the room, you might say. <laughs> that elephant was violence done to the emperors of Rome and their families by their own bodyguard. It happened over and over again while we were telling the stories of these child emperors. Sometimes it seemed like the bodyguard was really in charge all along. And Jen and I just had to look into this further. Yeah, we couldn't help ourselves. We fell down a massive research rabbit hole. And that rabbit hole happened to be the Praetorian Guard. They were an elite corps of soldiers that acted as bodyguards to the emperors of ancient Rome. They were founded by the first emperor, Augustus. And for three centuries, the guard protected him and his family from anyone who wanted to do them harm, except when they were the ones who wanted to do the emperor harm. Long before the first official Praetorian Guard was formed, Roman military commanders were accompanied by hand-picked personal guards, both to secure their safety and to signify their rank. 
The word praetorian comes from the word praetor, which means a leader, literally the man who goes before others. The word praetorium came to refer to the tent of a general on campaign, and the word is derived from the group of chosen soldiers that these generals would assemble around themselves to protect them on campaign. The birth of the Praetorian Guard as an institution goes back to the birth of the empire itself. After Julius Caesar was murdered, his adopted heir, Octavian, went to war against his former ally, Mark Antony. And his wife, Cleopatra. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that Cleopatra. That's my favorite Cleopatra. Oh my god, yeah. We're totally going to get to an entire episode about her because there's so much to say that I bet most people don't know. Mm -hmm. Being powerful generals, both men brought large cohorts of personal guards into battle with them. Then came the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Octavian won. Mark Antony and Cleopatra both committed suicide, and Octavian, who would later become the Emperor Augustus, scooped up Mark Antony's personal guard and combined them with his own. The resulting force was the best of the best, a hand-picked group of battle-hardened soldiers who would protect the Emperor for as long as he lived, accompanying him on campaign and enforcing his laws. Augustus knew that in establishing the Praetorian Guard, he was making a devil's bargain. Anyone in charge of this force would be able to challenge the power of the emperor himself, and this could not be tolerated. The leader of the Praetorian Guard was called the Prefect. We mentioned prefects a lot during this episode, and we also mentioned prefects a lot when we were talking about child emperors in the last episode, and I don't think I really explained it, but the Praetorian Prefect, he was the officer in charge of the guard, and he wasn't only that. He would also also be the emperor's best frenemy, plotting against him, colluding with him, and enabling his best and worst instincts throughout the centuries. And we're using male pronouns here because, yes, these were always dudes. They were. Augustus originally created two Praetorian prefect positions, so no one person ever had too much power. When you think about the American government and the three branches of government to keep everyone in checks and balances, that's kind of what Augustus was doing back in ancient times. Yeah, it was a super basic way of doing that. Yeah, I mean... Ideally, he would have had three people, and then there really would have been checks and balances. But, you know, two was good enough. So he scattered this elite guard both in and around the city so that they wouldn't present a unified threat to his power. Right. He also did this to shield the Praetorians' power from the people. Romans were still very attached to the idea of their country as a republic where everyone got a say, and Julius Caesar had been assassinated by a group of senators, in part because he'd been too open about seizing power. At first, Augustus only had nine cohorts. Now, each cohort was 500 men strong, so that's quite a lot of people, Denny. Later, he boosted that number up to 1,000 men per cohort. Again, I mean, that's a private army. Yeah. In Augustus' this time, the Praetorians patrolled outside the Imperial Palace. They protected the Emperor and his family, and they also acted as crowd control in the city. The Praetorians were supposed to be the most badass of the Roman military elite, but in truth, the average legionary saw them as a bit of a joke. For triple the regular army pay and a significantly shorter term of service, the Praetorians got the cushy job of guarding the Emperor and the Imperial Palace. Instead of subduing barbarian hordes on the Empire's borders for decades on end, they only went to war when the Emperor did, and otherwise, mainly served as crowd control and secret police in the capital. To the battle-hardened legionaries, their lives looked pretty easy. So Pliny the Elder tells the story of Vinius Valens, one of Augustus's praetorians, who was immensely strong. Among his amazing feats of strength were hoisting carts of wine over his head, pitting his strength against teams of horses, and acting as a courier for the Emperor Augustus, carrying not important military dispatches, but large volumes of poetry. And I mean, this is totally tongue-in-cheek, and I have not done the research on this, but I, I bet you, Jenny... He was carrying the Aeneid. I bet he was carrying the Aeneid. I bet Augustus just wanted him to, like, distribute it far and wide. 
We've mentioned before in the second part of How to Survive a Siege about Augustus and the Aeneid. And I bet you, because he commissioned the Aeneid, he was getting people to just distribute it. Maybe he just wanted someone to carry it. Maybe. He just wanted it with him at all times. And he needed someone who was really burly to carry this giant scroll or whatever whatever form it took back in the day. I mean, it would be several scrolls. It was epic lyric poetry and many volumes. It was probably in a box or like in a quiver. Can you imagine if it was in like its own time capsule with ancient Roman stickers on it? I wonder if Vinny's Valence hit a version for us somewhere. Could you imagine with like Lisa Frank stickers? That'd be so beautiful. Oh, Vinny. <laughs> oh, Vin. Secret Lisa Frank obsession <laughs> that you have. And for those of you who did not grow up in the 80s and 90s, Google it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So let's go back into the story. No doubt, before we got on that segue, the story I just told you was very tongue-in-cheek, and it was an illustration of how the military saw the Praetorians. If Valens was a real person, with his exploits carved on a tomb as Pliny the Elder claimed, it likely prompted vigorous eye rolls among the ordinary soldiers. But was the life of the average Praetorian really that easy? Most Praetorians enlisted between the ages of 17 and 23 and were expected to serve for about 16 years as as opposed to the 25 years that was demanded of average legionaries. But that 16 years of service was really more of a minimum than a hard limit. And up until the 2nd century AD, the Roman army only discharged soldiers once every two years. So some people got to serve for 16 years, but about half had to serve for 17. And when times were tight or there was a war, soldiers wouldn't be discharged for years past their date, and you'd start seeing some Praetorians serving for like 20 years or more. So Praetorians got paid about triple what the average legionary took home, plus a generous bonus every time a new emperor came into power. But for all that extra pay and the proximity to the emperor and power, they weren't exactly living in luxury. After Augustus's death, under Tiberius, the Praetorians were all brought into Rome, and they were housed in a fortress called the Castra Praetoria. This fortress was built to accommodate about 3,000 to 5,000 soldiers. But at various times during the next 300 years, 
it may have housed almost 15,000 Praetorian guards and their horses. The overcrowding was so bad that extra small barracks had to be built into the walls, and the two-story living structures were constructed in single-story spaces. Some archaeologists believe the cavalry lived in rooms divided in half. Half the room for the soldiers, half the room for their horses. So the living conditions were not exactly five-star. But what about the Praetorians' duties? Those included guarding the palace, acting as anti-riot police, and accompanying the emperor on campaign. And surely that was a walk in the park compared to what the ordinary military had to put up with. Oh yeah, total walk in the park, Jenny. Not exactly. According to gravestones found of Praetorians and records of discharge, only about 42% of the Praetorians lived to be discharged. I wonder how that compares to the records of, like, regular legionnaires. Yeah, I don't actually know, and that's a super interesting question. Well, I'm sure someone out there knows. If anyone knows, let us know. If you have the discharge records and you could tell us the survival rate of legionaries, just normal legionaries in the... Roman army tell us because we'd be fascinated absolutely fascinated but I mean 42% survival rate from what should be a cushy job something else is going on there I'm, I'm guessing feels like not a cushy job no and you know what it does turn out that guarding the emperor was not for the faint of heart displeased Roman crowds could turn extremely violent and the emperor was a frequent target for their outrage for instance Augustus one of the most skilled and politically adept emperors in Rome's history almost got himself stoned to death by an angry mob that held him responsible for an interruption in the grain supply. And seriously, not having grain is a massive deal in the ancient world. That's that's your main supply of food. And it is one of those things where, like, people were stoned to death, kings were deposed for less. There was a grain dole in Rome, just everybody got a certain supply of grain. Yeah, and I mean, in a, in a big city like that, you need that dole because you can't grow things in a city. So a few emperors later, the emperor Claudius was accosted in the forum by an angry crowd, again, furious about food shortages. Part of the Praetorian's duty was extracting the emperor from large, murderous crowds before they could rend him limb from limb. And they were frequently outnumbered. Right. Anti-riot duty in Rome was no joke. Rome was a densely populated, violent city with riots that could last for days and consume entire neighborhoods. And the Praetorians themselves were frequent targets of political violence. For instance, in AD 238, the infamous teacup poodle and Demnatio Memoriae Emperor Maximinius Thrax went on campaign, taking with him most of the Praetorian Guard. While he was gone, the Senate sought to overthrow him, electing two new co-emperors, Balbinus and the very unfortunately named Poopy Enus. And we go into Balbinus and Poopy Enus in a lot more detail in Child Emperors. A mob of gladiators and assorted randos loyal to those two new emperors assaulted the Castra Praetoria, which was manned only by a handful of Praetorians nearing the end of their service. So these were older veterans loyal to Maximinius. And these Praetorians first defended the fort using their archery skills. There were no known archery specialists in the Praetorian Guard, but archery was part of their regular training. They then took took the fight to the streets, coming out of their fortress and facing the mob head on. Despite being vastly outnumbered, they killed all the gladiators before returning to the fortress. The surviving mob continued its attack, but it was easily beaten back since it had lost its most experienced fighters. And to me, Jenny, this is super interesting about the gladiators being in this mob, because we always think about the Spartacus uh, rebellion and the Servile Wars. Yeah. And you think like, oh, well, if Spartacus could do it, then, you know, 
why why would you have these gladiators? You could have all this training within your walls in your city. And I mean, and I think that um, it's the assumption because we grew up on movies about gladiators being completely badass that the gladiators are super militant and they were really badass and stuff. And that's not always the case, you know. Like a lot of the time, they were just like somebody who got into debt and wound up going into the arena or wound up in slavery and wound up in the arena. And yeah, they went through training, but the Praetorian Guard would have been in general a lot better trained than them. Yeah, I mean, the Praetorian Guard were above all things militarily trained. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing. We're going to talk about Spartacus. And that's the interesting thing about the Spartacus Revolution. There was quite a core of military training involved, which allowed them to be able to go up against elite Roman military, which an average gladiator wouldn't have that training. Yeah, that was one of the things that made Spartacus special. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this point, Balbinus and Poopy Enus <laughs> gave the orders. <laughs> I just can't. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to be 12 years old. Gave the order to cut off the water supply to the fortress. This forced the Praetorians outside again, chasing the mob into the alleyways. At this point, the crowd gained the advantage. They retreated to the rooftops and pelted the Praetorians with heavy roof tiles, forcing them to form a tortuga which was a tightly packed shield wall maneuver held overhead. It was one of the signature Roman military maneuvers. And the word means turtle. It does. It means turtle. The mob wasn't completely defeated until the Praetorians set fire to the neighborhood, which was a preferred method of crowd control. Among their more mockable duties, the Praetorians were expected to keep order during theatrical performances and games. When the Emperor Nero was in power, he used to give his own performances. The Praetorians had to make sure that people didn't leave and that they showed the appropriate level of appreciation. Those who didn't clap hard enough were beaten. Some of the Praetorians would wear plain clothes and stand among the crowd, listening for anyone saying negative things about the Emperor. I mean, that is downright spying on your own citizens, isn't it? It sounds kind of funny, but it's actually really menacing because they would take note of who was there and who wasn't there. If you were a high-profile file visible person and you skipped, that would be noticed. So you had to go. And if you were having a conversation with your husband or your significant other about whatever, there were moles in the audience who were listening to what you were saying and reporting it potentially back to the emperor. And if they weren't reporting it back to the emperor, they could take that information and store it for a rainy day. If you ever go to an evening of theater in ancient Rome, take note, the guards at the doors are not there for your safety. Keeping order in the theaters could be surprisingly dangerous. In AD 15, which is not during Nero's time, a fact that frankly surprises me, a riot broke out in a theater that killed several Praetorian guards. Even so, the Praetorians gave as good as they got. Their methods of crowd control were not soft and cuddly. As mentioned before, one of them was setting fire to buildings to stop riots, and in a city of closely packed wooden tenements, this could be disastrous. In his book, Roman Guardsmen 62 BC to AD 324, Ross Cowan asks us to imagine, quote, a dense cordon around the emperor while he was on the move, blocking off streets and the entrances of buildings while he was inside. No doubt, the huge escort was disruptive in the narrow Roman streets. Adding to the confusion, anyone getting near the emperor could expect to be beaten with clubs and the flats of swords. In general, the average Roman had an uneasy relationship with the Praetorians. In addition to violent crowd control tactics, they sometimes unleash their violence unprovoked. This was especially a problem during the reign of the Emperor Commodus from 180 to 192 AD. Commodus was known for letting his Praetorians run wild. I mean, I really... <laughs> Praetorians run wild! <laughs> 
Exactly. I feel like I need a t-shirt that just says Praetorians Run Wild. I wonder if they were getting Mardi Gras beads. Oh my god, could you imagine ancient Roman Mardi Gras beads? I bet they were made of beautiful glass. I bet they were Saturnalia beads. Oh, yeah. They're like flashing their nipples for Saturnalia beads. This is what I'm picturing. I mean, I'm just picturing like, we'll talk about Saturnalia at the end of the year, but the Praetorians is the lord of misrule and getting to tell people what to do. Anyway, so these Praetorians were running wild with their beads and their t-shirts, and they developed a reputation for dealing out random beatings to Roman citizens and breaking into people's houses to rob them. I mean, yeah, I prefer the beads and the flashing. Right, I would too. The exposed nipples. It's just all in good fun. Mm. Commodus had a lot of conspiracies during his reign, and some of them involved his Praetorian prefects. He had two prefects executed for plotting to kill him. Later, his best friend Cleander, a former slave and pack carrier who'd been raised to the position of Chamberlain, took over command of the Praetorian Guard, and later Commodus had him beheaded. The Praetorians' chief job, however, was to protect the emperor, and they could be overzealous in doing it. For instance, in AD 14, a senator came to the palace to apologize to the emperor Tiberius for saying something that offended him. The senator groveled so hard that Tiberius almost tripped over him, and then his Praetorian guard proceeded to beat the man almost to death. So the Praetorians might be a monster at this point, but if you're the emperor, they're your monster. So when did it turn? To answer that question, we have to look back to the reign of Tiberius. He was the son-in-law of the Emperor Augustus and became the emperor after Augustus died in 14 AD. Tiberius was the next generation to rule after Julius Caesar was killed and Augustus engineered the transition from Republic to Empire. So power was still tenuous, even though Augustus had ruled for a very long time. Rome still had a very uneasy relationship with being an empire. Yeah, and also points of transition are always really unstable periods in governments like this. It's kind of like a pattern over and over again in a lot of these ancient governments. Yeah, and Tiberius is the second in the Julian-Claudian dynasty, and this was a very very tenuous moment where they transfer that power. So the same year that Tiberius took power, he made a praetorian named Sejanus, co-prefect along with his father, Strabo. So Strabo, the father, was a good soldier who'd served without incident, but his son Sejanus was ambitious, and when his father was appointed to serve as governor of Egypt, Sejanus was given sole leadership over the praetorian guard. Big mistake. This is the first dismantling of Augustus's safeguards against the beast's power. Tiberius relied heavily on Sejanus and looked the other way as his prefect gradually began chipping away at the other limits to his power. It was Sejanus who brought the Praetorian Guard into the city, building the Castra Praetoria, increasing the number of cohorts, and doing away with the tradition of two prefects, because Sejanus don't share no power. Soon, Sejanus had a force of about 12,000 elite soldiers in the city, answerable to him alone. The beast in the palace was now twice as big, with extra sharp fangs. Tiberius didn't notice. But the beast was breathing down his neck. What Sejanus wanted was to be made Tiberius's heir. And there was precedent for that because the ancient Roman Empire was not something that was automatically passed down from fathers to natural sons or to biological children. They could make anyone their heir. In this case, though, Tiberius already had an heir, his son Drusus. Sejanus and Drusus did not get along. Drusus thought Sejanus was getting above himself, objecting loudly, quote, that a stranger was invited to assist in the government while the emperor's son was alive. That's from Dio. One time, Drusus punched Sejanus in the face during an argument. So Sejanus was all about the long game, right? His revenge was to seduce Drusus's wife, Livilla, and persuade her to poison her husband slowly so it looked like he died of natural causes. Just going to show you that you do not cross Sejanus. Yep, and Sejanus still doesn't share power. Right. 
Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Struck with grief over his son's death, Tiberius retired to Capri and left the day-to-day running of the empire to Sejanus. The prefect then proceeded to rid himself of everyone else who might stand in the way of his power. And this included Tiberius's new heirs and adopted grandsons, Nero, not that Nero, and another Drusus. This would be a second Drusus, not the one that was just poisoned. And this Drusus was probably named after the one who was poisoned, because that was his uncle. You are you like really know who all of these people with the same names are. I'm so impressed. I'm going to warn you guys that this family in particular is such a fascinating family in ancient Roman history. I'm going to do an entire two-part series on them. They are such a soap opera. If we can get some, like, as the world turns styles music to go with it, it would be great. Due to Sejanus's machinations, not that Nero was sent into exile and was either murdered or forced to commit suicide. Drusus was imprisoned and starved to death in the dungeons under the Imperial Palace. Before he died, he was found to have been eating the stuffing in his mattress. So, just reiterating, in case anyone needed reminding, you do not cross Sejanus. For a brief time, Sejanus was treated as the de facto emperor. He made his birthday a public holiday, and look, if I'm ever made emperor of anything, my birthday is totally going to be a public holiday. I support this. And people lobbied him for favors as if he were the emperor himself. And Tiberius, from his self-imposed exile in Capri, finally noticed he had a problem. So Tiberius received a letter from Antonia who was the mother of Lavilla, remember Sejanus's poisoning side piece, and the wife of Drusus. Antonia uncovered Sejanus's treachery. So did Tiberius return to Rome ready to take on the beast in his own house after he received this news? No. Tiberius was no Augustus, but he'd still learned a thing or two from the old man. He saw he was in a vulnerable position. He saw that the beast in his house had grown to ten times its natural size and had chewed through its collar. The Praetorians were loyal to Sejanus. Tiberius had to move carefully. Instead of a frontal attack, he showered Sejanus with honors. He promoted him to consul and then sent a series of very confusing letters. First, he praised the prefect to the heavens and then he condemned him. And first, he claimed to be very sick, and then he announced he was in fine spirits and about to journey to Rome. In this way, Tiberius kept everyone guessing. Nobody knew whether to treat Sejanus as the de facto emperor or a retainer who had fallen out of favor. Then Tiberius spread the rumor that he planned to give Sejanus a promotion to tribune of the people, which was a strong signal that he was about to make him his heir. And this is, of course, everything Sejanus wanted. And for the next step in this plan, Tiberius enlisted the help of another Praetorian, a guy named Macro. Sejanus was getting a bit nervous around now. All these hot and cold missives from Tiberius were making him twitchy. Macro assured him that the emperor was pleased with his performance and was even planning to promote him and give him everything he wanted. He hinted heavily that Tiberius was looking at candidates for heir and that Sejanus kept coming up at the top of the list. 
Macro coaxed him into the Temple of Apollo, separating him from his guards. Sejanus was really excited now and displaying zero chill. He ran into a temple full of senators, thinking he was going to get a giant promotion and a boatload of praise and adulation. Instead, he was arrested, dragged off to prison, and executed all in the same day. His body was dumped down the Gemonian stairs, where the corpses of criminals were sometimes left to rot. Those would be the naughty stairs. The naughty stairs. The ancient Roman naughty stairs. In Sejanus's case, the mob abused his body for three days. So all this just proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person you really do not want to cross is Tiberius. The downfall of Sejanus had a deadly ripple effect on the people close to him. Some innocent, others not so innocent. Sejanus's three children were executed and dumped down the naughty stairs too. And this is a really disturbing detail. His daughter was first raped by the executioner because it was illegal to execute a virgin in the prisons. Sejanus's ex-wife, Apicata, whom he divorced so as not to make his paramour Lavilla jealous. Remember, she was the woman who poisoned Drusus, her husband. Apicata, Sejanus's ex-wife, was not executed. But she was so distraught about the death of her children that she immediately told Tiberius about Lavilla's part in Drusus's death and then committed suicide. In the fallout, Lavilla died too. Some say she was executed by Tiberius. Others say she was spared, but her own mother, Antonia, the woman who tipped off Tiberius about Sejanus' treachery, was so disgusted by her daughter's behavior that she starved her to death. Tiberius stayed in power for six more years. Despite the fact that they'd been officially his all along, he had to bribe the Praetorians' loyalty after Sejanus' death. For a brief period, before Tiberius had fully taken control, they started looting Rome. But Tiberius won them back to his side with a generous bonus for their loyalty. Macro, Tiberius's new Praetorian prefect, was also a schemer. According to Tacitus, he encouraged his wife to sleep with Caligula, who was Tiberius's adopted grandson and little brother to the doomed Nero and Drusus. At this point, Caligula was a strong contender for heir. Tiberius died at the age of 78, and Tacitus says Macro smothered him so Caligula could come into power. Caligula became emperor in AD 37, and his reign became synonymous with tyranny, sadism, and cruelty, and we will tell you all about it in two weeks. But before we go, I just want to say, do you know who's a Donata Memoriae? Is it Caligula? Yeah, no, it's definitely Caligula, but do you know who else is a Donata Memoriae, who we just talked about, Jenny? Is it Sejanus? It's totally Sejanus! Can we remind people what that is? So, Dimnata Memoriae means to condemn your memory. The ancient Romans thought of it as, like, erasing you from history. So if you were someone who, like Sejanus or Caligula, would have had statues, or you might have been on money, or you might have been on legal documents, or whatever, your name was struck, and your likenesses were destroyed, and pretty much you were supposed to be taken out of history as if you'd never existed. They were condemning your memory to obscurity. And sometimes it was made a crime to mention your name, Mm -hmm. like with Caracalla and Geta. So, Every time we see one of these in ancient Roman history, I'm probably just going to be like, hey guys, Demnato Memoriae. It's like you're waving a wand and casting a spell. Exactly. Demnato Memoriae. Demnato Memoriae. Everyone will forget you. Demnato Memoriae. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you want more fangirl in the meantime, because two weeks without us is just too long, follow us on Twitter. We are Ancient Hist Fan with a T. Find us on Facebook and Instagram as Ancient History Fangirl and check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. And if you like this podcast, leave us a rating because we're just getting started and every little one helps. And one more thing. 
If you like what we do and you'd like to help us keep the podcast going, there's an easy way to do that. Just go to the website, www.ancienthistoryfangirl.com, click on Buy Us a Latte, and toss us a couple bucks. And this helps us pay for things like better sound, research materials, website and SoundCloud hosting, and caffeinated beverages that keep us both going. Thank you guys so much. Every little bit really does help. Yeah, it really does. Thank you so much. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.